know the difference um, between a city dog and a country dog? How many of you are dog owners? Raise your hand if you own a dog. This is the thing in Nashville, I guess, like people just own dogs here. Um, now, most of our dogs, if I had to imagine, are city dogs. Me and my wife and my family, we, we own a city dog. Um, now, my in-laws, uh, they used to own a country dog, RIP Susie, um, we love you and miss you. Um, but they lived in the country, and so I've seen the difference. Um, I've seen the difference of a city dog and a country dog. Now, country dogs, if you don't know, if you've never heard this illustration before, they live in wide open spaces. They're kind of free to roam, go about where they want to. You know, country dogs can go down to the creek and play. They can chase after squirrels and rabbits and, you know, doing all of uh, the dog things. But the thing about country dogs is eventually a country dog comes back to one place. Uh, they, they kind of find themselves sitting in the same place time and time again. My mom grew up on a farm and all the dogs kind of sit on the front porch uh, near uh, my grandfather who used, who used to own, own them. And they would come back to the same place time and time again because they knew like the best place to be was there, the closest place to their master. Now city dog's different. Uh, for those of you that own dogs, you know what I'm talking about. City dogs, you know, they're cooped up in the house. And, and what they're doing is they're watching the patterns of, of their owners. And they're, they're saying, okay, here's when, here's when the doors open and here's when the doors close. Um, here's when the back gate sometimes comes open. And as soon as there's a crease, city dog, gone. Except Garrett and Kelly's dog. They're really well behaved. Y'all have amazing dogs. But typically, the city dog is gone. It's gone and, you know, you're, if you've ever had this happen to you before, uh, Logan and John know you have. Um, you're out calling by name, you know, the dog. You're probably driving in your car around the neighborhood. And here's the thing, like you can do everything in your power to call that dog back home, beg that dog to come back home, but it's not gonna, it's not gonna come back home. Now this illustration is kind of funny, kind of silly, but I really believe it points to a deeper reality with, with inside our human condition. Deep down within each of us, I think, is this desire to be fulfilled, like this desire to be satisfied. And in this parable that Jesus tells us, he's gonna kind of give us two pictures, I think two different ways that we as human beings tend to try and satisfy this need uh, for fulfillment, this need for satisfaction. He's gonna give us two pictures in this one parable. And typically when we look at this parable, we have to do it all in, in, one, in one sitting. And what we're gonna do is we're actually gonna break up this parable into two weeks. And so we're gonna look at the first half of this parable this morning, the younger son. And then next week, we're, we're gonna look um, at the elder son and kind of two ways that we, that we long, that we look for um, this fulfillment and this satisfaction. And I'm excited to unpack this story because I think it gives us one of the clearest pictures of the gospel. I think it gives us one of the clearest pictures into God's father heart. God's heart for me, God's heart for you um, as a father. And I wanna begin unpacking this, but we have to give a little, little bit of context here uh, to the story. And so the story is actually pretty, pretty short and quick, but there's a lot, there's a lot happening here. And so I wanna kind of unpack the story and unfold the story together um, with you all this morning. And so I wanna jump back to verse 12. Let's begin unpacking the story and what, what Jesus is getting at here. Verse 12 is pretty short. It says, the younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. 
And so the father, he divided his property between them. Okay, first of all, there's, there's something happening within the life of the son. Okay, zoom out for a moment and kind of view this story with me. Picture yourself um, with a father who has this large estate. You know, honestly, I was just thinking this week, his life is pretty good. Like, he, he probably has his job and his future lined up. Like, he's the heir to this great estate. He probably has a really nice, cushy role in the family business. Like, the, the reality is, is the younger son's life is probably, probably pretty good. And yet, there was a part of him that did not believe that this was true. Hey, there was a part of him that kind of said, hey, there's probably more out there for me. There's probably a more fulfilling, a more satisfying life than, than what I'm experiencing right now. And so he asked for his share of the inheritance, his share of the estate. Now, the audience listening to this would have been a little bit more shocked than we probably are. Um, we may be a little more self-entitled than they were in ancient Jewish culture, but the, the audience then would have been shocked that this, that this son, this younger son, was asking for his portion of his inheritance. This was a sign of deep disrespect for you to ask for your inheritance while your father was still actually living. I mean, can you imagine doing this honestly even now? Calling up your mom or dad being like, hey, listen, I love you, but I'm, I, would really, I would really love my portion of your 401k that you plan on giving me uh, when you pass away. I mean, I don't, think, I don't think any of us would do this even now, but back then in this patriarchal society, this would have been deeply, deeply disrespectful. He wants the Father's things, right? He wants the Father's things. But what I was uncovering this week, he wants the Father's things and not the Father. Now the Father's response, I mean, I'll call up my dad tomorrow and ask him this, I mean, he's just gonna laugh at me. He's not even gonna be angry, he's just gonna laugh. Um, but the father's response here, it is even more startling than the son asking for his portion of the inheritance. You see, you have to remember, deeply patriarchal society. This, this kind of behavior typically would have been responded with um, a harsh rebuke, a harsh punishment. Uh, the, the, dad, the dad would have uh, done something to the son to punish him. But the father did not react the way that the crowd thought the father was gonna react even in this moment. And so instead he divides up his property. He, he gives the younger brother his inheritance. But have you ever thought about the implications of what this meant for the father? So we read through this story and we kind of breeze through it. Maybe it's the first time you've heard it, but this was not a simple um, process for the father. This is not, hey, I'm transferring this from my 401k into your bank account. Like there were a lot of hoops that the father had to jump through because typically your inheritance was made up of land. It was made up of property. And so the father would have to go and he would have to sell his property in order to get the money that was due to the younger son. Not only that, I mean, think about this. His son probably had a role within the family business. And so the father's not only losing a portion of his wealth, he's actually losing his son himself. The son's, from what I can read, is not planning on coming back 
anytime soon, maybe ever. And so the father is jumping through a lot of hurdles here to make this happen. And this kind of response from the father, it would have dumbfounded the crowd. They would have never seen or experienced a father like this before. Now let's jump back to the son though. Let's jump back to the son. Something deeper is happening within his heart, right? He's not just doing this for, for no reason. So I was kind of reflecting this week. Okay, what's happening here? Like what's happening within the heart of the son for him to do this? And I just think, oh, I think he's just being lured, maybe being allured by a number of different things. There's something that's drawing him out from where he is, this current place of satisfaction to, oh, maybe there's something more. Maybe there's something better. Maybe there's something greater. So I was just thinking, hey, there's this allure of adventure for the son. There's this allure of excitement and adventure. Okay, right now where I'm at isn't really fulfilling me, and so there's gotta be something better out there, right? There's gotta be something greater. Maybe it's the allure of self-gratification. Maybe you've been there. This allure that, okay, there have gotta be better ways to satisfy me. Maybe there's the allure, the allure of more, the allure of not being satisfied with where you are and what you have. And the reality is, I don't think he in himself was trying to be um, like really disrespectful to his father. Like, I, don't, I don't think that's what's happening here. I think he's a little bit blind to his own self-centeredness. He's a little bit blind to, to, to what he's doing or else I don't think he would have asked the father. You see, there, there gets to this point in his life where he's realizing, hey, I think I desire possessions over people. And the relationship that, they, that he has with his father, the relationships that he has maybe with his brother are no longer the most important thing to him. It's his father's possessions that, that tugged, that pulled, that, that motivated him. And now we come to this portion of the story that I think is a little bit easy to overlook. It's the season here in verse 13 before the storm hits. Before everything falls apart, it tells us he sets off for a, a different country, a distant foreign country, a foreign land. And I kept thinking all week, okay, what is he looking for? What were his plans? What were his ambitions? What was he in search of? What were the things that he wanted to do and the places he wanted to go in search of this fulfillment that I think he was longing for, that he was looking for? And for a while, I, I think things were going really well for him. I think he was having a lot of fun because let's be honest with each other. The allures of this world are really fun for a season. If the allures of the world were like, weren't pleasurable, aren't pleasurable, none of us would probably struggle with them, right? The things and the ways of this world will satisfy, but they will only satisfy for a season, maybe you've been there, maybe you know. 
The enemy definitely knows because I think the enemy is here at work in this moment. I was just thinking this week, I'm sure the piece of fruit that Adam and Eve tried, that they took a bite into, oh, I, bet, I bet for a moment that was the best tasting piece of fruit that they had ever had. But the satisfaction, it never lasts. It always comes up short. It always leaves us longing and wanting for more, right? It never fully satisfies. Never fully satisfies. And yet, we put our hope of fulfillment in so many things that will leave us wanting more. Money, sex, notoriety, status, possessions. You know yourself better than I do. Where do you turn to for fulfillment and satisfaction? I find myself thinking all the time, if I'm just being honest, oh, if I, if I had a newer car, okay, if I had a bigger house, okay, maybe you find yourself thinking, oh, this next vacation will satisfy me. Or, oh, maybe this, this travel destination will fulfill what I'm looking for. Okay, once this amount of money is saved in my bank account, I will be satisfied, I will be good. Okay, maybe this amount in retirement savings is, is gonna be the key that, that unlocks this need for satisfaction and fulfillment. Okay, maybe if I take control of my own sexuality, maybe, maybe that is the key to unlocking this longing that I have for satisfaction and fulfillment. And maybe we don't say that out loud. Like, we don't ever say those things out loud, but I think deep within our hearts, that's, that's what we're saying sometimes by what we do. I'll never forget listening to an interview of Tom Brady on 60 Minutes. Maybe some of you have, have seen it before. He had just won his third Super Bowl. Probably the greatest quarterback of all time. We can argue it, but let's be honest. Tom Brady, probably the greatest quarterback of all time. This is after just his, his third, just his third Super Bowl. Um, his third Super Bowl. He's getting interviewed on 60 Minutes. Um, all the money in the world, right? Tom Brady. I mean, more money than he knows what to do with. Probably one of the most infamous, famous people um, in the world. Uh, He's got the status. He has his dream job, the dream job, and he's accomplished the dream goal within that dream job, and I think he's even married to a supermodel, like an actual supermodel. And I'll never forget this portion of the interview. Tom, Tom Brady said, but there's gotta be more, right? There's gotta be more, right? And I was like, I'll be honest, I'm like, Tom, if you ain't happy, like, I, ain't nobody gonna be happy. <laughs> And the interviewer asked him, okay, like, like what, what more is there? And Tom, you know, he responds, he says, I don't know. I don't know. But we find ourselves there, don't we? Man, there's gotta be more. What's next in the story? Okay, the season of fun, the season of fun and fulfillment, but then the season of famine hits. The season of famine hits for the youngest son. He squandered all of his money, and at the same time where all of his money is gone, the deep economic depression sets in. Now these moments of famine, here's what happens, is these moments of famine expose what kind of return on your investments you will get. These moments of famine 
will expose the return on investment that you will get. And here he is. He's put all of his stock in all the wrong places, in all the wrong things, and he has no food, he has no friends, he has no family, and he has no father. And now I've maybe not lived long enough to experience this, this personally on a deep level, but I have enough mentors, I have enough friends, and I know enough of your stories to know that the storms of life will come. Like the storms of life will come. And I don't say this to scare us, it's just a reality. Like the storms of life will come. And there's this moment when he's, he's leaning upon things that are getting ready to be pulled out from, from him. And you know what happens when you're leaning upon something, someone pulls it out, you fall over. And he's flat on his face, He's come to the reality of where life has taken him. And we continue in the story. And I've never noticed this before in the story, but I noticed it this week. And I think it's important for us to notice. What's he, what's he do next? Something, something hit me this week in the parable. At this moment in the story, he could have gone home to the father. There was nothing stopping him from going home to the father at this point but he decides he's gonna try and fix the mess that he has made by himself. How many of us have ever been here? In the midst of a mess, big or small, our tendency is to try and fix it ourselves, right? I'm sure none of you have been there. Trying to conquer that addiction on your own trying to do enough spiritual activity, making sure that you feel good enough about yourself to come into the presence of the Father. Just me? And then there's this moment in verse 17 where it says he comes to his senses. He comes to his senses. He's thinking, wait a second. Okay, here I am without food. And the servants in my father's house have food on the table. Have you ever had one of these sobering moments in life where, where it's almost this zoomed out picture of, of what, what's most important and what really matters? I think that's what's happening here for him in this moment. It's that kind of just sobering moment where you come to your senses and you realize what things in your life matter most. Now, the interesting thing is, is he actually continues to try and fix it himself. So he begins to form this plan, right? So he, he comes to his senses and yet there's still this, this tendency in him where he's like, okay, my father has food. How can I get the food that my father has? Okay, I'll go back as a servant. I won't even ask him to be his son. I'll go back as a servant. See, he's disgraced his family. And in that time, when you disgrace your family, you disgrace your entire community. And so the rabbis would teach at that time, hey, if you disgrace your community, you can't go back to your community until you pay back your community for what, what you have done. And so essentially what he's saying is, I'll go back and be a servant. Hey, Father, will you apprentice me 
to one of your hired hands so that I can learn some type of trade so that then I can begin to repay my debt to you. That's essentially what he's saying here. So it's here in the pigsty, he has this plan. Can't you just hear him like rehearsing this speech? Okay, Father, I'm sending it, here's my plan. He's like, okay, I think I've got it. He's got his plan, he's fixed himself up enough, and now he's gonna go back to the Father. And this is the climax to the first half of this parable. Everyone at that time knew what was getting ready to happen. You see, this is a parable that had actually been told by rabbis during that time. This is a parable that they had actually heard before. In that context, in that culture, they knew the ending to the story. And so the super religious you know, the, the ones that had been going every week to church, the ones that knew the Bible like the back of their hand, they knew what was coming to the younger son. They're probably waiting in anticipation, rubbing their hands together, thinking, okay, here is where the son gets what the son deserves. So he's speaking to two groups of people, though. You've got the, the religious elite that he's speaking to, and then you've got the, the sinners and the outcast that he's also speaking to in this moment. And so can't you imagine just like the sinners in this room who are hearing this in this moment? They're like, great. We thought, we thought Jesus was beginning to uncover a God that, that maybe desires us and wants us. You see, he had just finished telling the parable of the lost sheep. He had just finished telling the parable of the lost coin. And so I think there was this, this moment where they're thinking, oh, okay, maybe this is for me. Maybe God is for me. But they had heard this parable before. They knew how this parable ended. And so I think in this moment, they're beginning to kind of hang their heads a little bit, thinking, man, Jesus, we thought you were different. We thought you were different. You're just another rabbi that's gonna tell us what we should have been doing, the shame that we should feel, the rejection that we should feel. And then Jesus, he begins to tell an alternate ending to the story that they had never heard before. Jesus, he begins describing God differently than the God that they had experienced and the God that they had heard about. Jesus, he begins in just a moment to uncover the heart of the Father a father, a God that was different than any God that they had experienced before. And it's at this moment in the story where we begin to realize that this story, it's not about a lost son. It may say that at the top of the story in your Bible, but this story is, is not about a lost son. This story is about the unexpected goodness of the father. So Jesus, he tells us that while the son was still a long way off, he saw him. I'm gonna read that, it's so good. Verse 20, if you're there with me, said, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, he threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to the father, he begins his speech, you know, that he's rehearsed so well. 
Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on his, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Jesus tells us that while the son was still a long way off, he saw him. Now, typically you don't see someone who's a long distance off unless you're waiting in anticipation for them. You see, the father was patiently waiting for his son to come home. He was longing. I think he was expectant for the son to come home. But he didn't just wait. He also ran. As soon as the son was in his sights, he ran towards him. Now the son is probably thinking in this moment like, oh shoot, like my dad is so mad at me that he's actually running towards me to, to give me the punishment that I deserve. He probably didn't say shoot either. <laughs> he's like, I deserve this a lot, a lot more and quicker than I thought I did. Now the fact that the father is running, honestly not a huge deal to us. Um, I run after my son all the time, chasing him. Now, once again, in their society, like the patriarch of the family would not have run. This, this was beneath them. This was below, below them. Something only children would have done. But I love about this. The father does not care. The father doesn't care. The father has seen his son coming home so he runs. And then there's this moment. There's this moment of the embrace. And I wonder, you know, when the father like flung his arms open, if the son still, he still didn't fully get what was happening here at this moment. He kind of winced, you know, as the father flung his arms open. Wraps his arm around him and kisses him. And even at this moment, the son still doesn't get it. So he begins to rehearse his speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. But the father, in all honesty, is just flat out too overjoyed to hear the excuses that the son is giving. He cuts the son off. He says, quick. Bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet. Now, the, these three items were not random. Parables were very deliberate, and every aspect of a parable had purpose. And so what Jesus is getting ready to unlock in their hearts, and what Jesus, I hope, is getting ready to unlock in our hearts is the reality of who God our Father is for each and every one of us. So he says, put the best robe on him. This would have been the father's robe, his own robe on him, and this was symbolic of righteousness. He says, hey, I, I am, I'm putting righteousness, restoring righteousness upon you. There's no, there's no waiting, there's no groveling. Immediately, you're back home. You're righteous in my sight. And he puts sandals on his feet. Now, now, 
servants at that time were not allowed to wear sandals in the presence of, of their master. So as he puts sandals on his son's feet, he is restoring the sonship that the son thought he had lost. Immediately, hey, you are my son. And then there's the ring on the finger. He hasn't only restored his righteousness, he hasn't only restored his sonship, but ring was symbolic of the inheritance that his father says, hey, you haven't lost that either. I'm restoring the inheritance that you thought you had squandered. And then the party of all parties is thrown. The father celebrates and rejoices over the son. This is the kind of father that we have in our God. This is how God sees you as his daughter as his son. This is the kind of celebrating God does when we're home in his house. Now often this parable has been referred to as the story of the prodigal son. You may have heard of that, the story of the prodigal son. Now you may not understand what this word prodigal actually, actually means. Um, prodigal is this reckless spendthrift. It's being reckless with your money. So typically this story is thought of the son being recklessly spendthrift with his money. But the reality is the story is not about a prodigal son, but about a prodigal God. A God who is willing to spend everything over and over again for you. A God who is willing to recklessly Spend his love and his mercy upon your wife, upon your life. And I, I love it. The very one who is telling this story was gonna pay the price for all of us. The very one whose life it would cost. The very currency with which God would spend upon our lives was the one telling this story to the people in the crowd. I don't know where you find yourself this morning, but God wants you to come home. I promise you our Father in heaven is far better, far more loving, far more gracious than you could ever fathom or imagine. He does not want your perfection he does not want your explanations. He does not want you to fix yourself. He just wants you to come home. All the way home. And to truly live, to truly live as the daughter or the son that you are in his eyes. We're gonna go to the table this morning. And as we go to the table this morning, here's what I want us to do. There's this, there's this moment where the father, he, he puts on the robe, he puts on the ring, he puts on the sandals upon the feet of his, of his son. And as we go to communion this morning, I, I want us, in, in our imaginations, to imagine God himself welcoming, welcoming us home as we go to the table. 
Because this table, it represents um, the robe of righteousness. This table represents the sandals of our sonship, of our daughtership. This table represents that you do not have to do anything in order to be in the house of the Father. I'm gonna ask us to pray about two things. One, there may be people in your life right now who are running from God. There, there are people in your life who are far from God. You have to remember, we're in this parable to, to remind us that God cares, cares for those who aren't yet home. And so I'm gonna ask us, as we go to the table, as we remind ourselves that we have a, have a place in the Father's house, let's think about those who aren't, aren't yet in the house of the Father. Who, who are those people in your life that you wanna spend time praying for? And then there's some of you that simply need to come home this morning. Some of you that just simply need to come home. Maybe, maybe you've been there before and you've left and you need that reminder that, that hey, there's nothing that, that you need to do except to simply come home. I'll tell you what, I'm gonna be in the back. Brandon will be in the back. I invite other spiritual mothers, fathers to join me in the back. Um, if you are having a hard time believing this, if this isn't your current reality, um, we wanna pray identity over you. We wanna pray truth over you. We wanna pray this reality um, over you in the back. So if, if you need to come home to the Father's house, if, if, if you feel like you're, you're distant in a way, hey, I want to invite you to come back, come back and pray. I want to invite spiritual fathers and mothers who are here, um, come back, let's pray identity over those that, that need to hear this. But the rest of us, I'm gonna invite us to go to the table, um, put on the robe, remind ourselves what Jesus has done, uh, and pray for those that aren't yet home. So let's stand together, I'll pray for us. Let's go to the table. God, you are far greater and far better um, than we know. By the power of your spirit, will you just um, reveal this identity to us um, as we take the cup, as we eat the bread. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.